Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, why fly eyes aren't so static. And calls for militaries to count their climate emissions. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrich Howe. Ever had a good look at a fly's eyes? They're a pretty prominent feature. And, unlike our eyes, they seem to be rigidly fixed in place. Or at least, they appear that way. But according to work recently published in Nature... That might not quite be true. Now, flies have compound eyes, which are made up of a collection of units that come together to create omnidirectional eyes that can see all around them whilst remaining fixed to the insect exoskeleton. This is quite different from our eyes, which are a bit more like cameras that move around and focus on specific things. However, there have been hints since the 1970s that parts of the housefly's eye, specifically the retina, the inner light-sensitive part, might be able to move around. And that's because there are mysterious little muscles attached to them. Aficionados knew about it, but the exact reasons for having such a muscle were unclear. This is Gabby Mayman, one of the authors of the work in Nature. He and his team have been looking deep into flies' eyes with a combination of microscopes and cameras to see if those hints from the 70s bear out in a staple of the lab. The fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. I caught up with Gabby and one of his co-authors, Lisa Fenk, to find out more. I started by asking them, what was the motivation behind this paper? Here's Lisa first. I did my PhD in spiders and I recorded from spider eye muscles. So I was very aware that at least some arthropods can move their eyes. So I was really interested in, in whether Drosophila or model organisms also move their eyes to some extent, right? And then I think what we found was like just so much more interested than I would have um, thought when, when starting out. And, and Lisa and I had her main project in the lab 
And this was kind of the side project. Every few months we would go look, maybe they're moving their retinas. And then there was this one day I remember when Lisa basically visualized the retina for the first time in a fly that was flying. And it was pretty clear. You looked at it and it was moving. (laughs) And the thing that convinced us this is not just kind of random jiggles was at some point then Lisa moved a visual image in front of the eye and the retina tracked it. And there's this video that I have on my phone where Lisa says, Gabby, I think it's tracking. That is the moment we kind of switched to saying this is probably the most interesting thing we could be working on. And so you had this like one instance where you're like, okay, there is something moving here. What was your next step then? How did you sort of seek to confirm that this really was the case? So first of all, we wanted to see how the um, muscles look like in Drosophila. So Igor Sivanovic, our collaborator, did lots of anatomy to visualize how those muscles attach to this membrane inside the fly head. We used optogenetics. So in, in, in flies, we can target specific neurons. And so we, we got access to the motor neurons that innervate those muscles. And then you can express a redshifted channel rhodopsin and activate the muscles using red light. So we, we kind of can command retinal movements in the fly. We did lots of behavioral experiments where we just tracked the retina in, in different contexts with visual motion, in stationary environments. And then in the end, we combined it with basically looking at, at how visual neurons react to eye movements in, in specific situations. And then after we did all that, the nature reviewers were still not fully satisfied <laughs> and um, and said, you know, can you prove that these movements are relevant for a behavior, a specific behavior? And so we studied gap crossing behavior, which is flies when they arrive to a little gap in their walkway. If they can't fly over because they're constrained in some way, they'll do these kind of rock climber type movements where they reach their legs to the other side of the gap and then swinging their body over. And this behavior involves assessment of depth. It's been argued in the literature. So we had kind of the idea that one of the functions of retinal movements in flies might be to help assess depth. And indeed, we found that they move their eyes when they cross the gap And when you silence these retinal muscles or or mute their ability to move the retina, flies cross the gap differently. And so we think that's one of the first kind of functions we've shown for the movements beyond kind of more basic image stability and exploratory kind of movements that we started with. And kind of down the road, the expectation is that these movements might serve many more functions. And I guess that leads to the question of, what sort of use does it have for the fly to be able to move its eyes in this way? What sort of advantage does it give it? Fly compound eyes basically look everywhere at at the same time and they do that with roughly the same resolution, which is very different from uh, human eyes. We have a, a part on our retina that is called fovea, where we have particularly good resolution. So we, we can uh, resolve very fine visual detail with the fovea. And so many of our eye movements serve the purpose of pointing the fovea to one point of interest and then changing gaze. And so flies don't have that. And so we were wondering what would that be good for? And I guess there are many functions that you can find in other animals that could also apply to flies. So you could move the eyes to refresh the image because if you have a completely stationary 
I viewing a stationary scene, the percept tends to fade out. And you can imagine that tugging on the retina could bring that percept back. And I guess what we have shown in the paper is that it seems that they use it for depth perception as well. So I guess there's lots of different eye movements that could come with a multitude of, of different functions for visual perception. And what do you think are the sort of implications of this work? One aspect of the work is that it kind of is similar to what engineers have been doing when they are trying to increase the resolution of very low resolution cameras. Recent work has been, you know, showing that if you jiggle the sensor, you can actually increase the effective resolution of a camera through sampling over time. The same way Lisa was suggesting that the fly may be doing this in biology or in the biological case. And beyond that, you know, I think human eye movements have served as a window to various internal processes in us, like where our tension is in the world, we usually move our eyes there. When we sleep, we move our eyes in ways that informs different phases of sleep. And so one of the possibilities is that in Drosophila, we might learn more about processes like that, like internal attention and the animal caring about different parts of the visual world. Maybe we'll have a window into that by visualizing where their retina is moving or potentially in sleep, if they move their eyes in specific ways, it might inform aspect of that behavioural state. That was Gabby Mayman from the Rockefeller University in the US. You also heard from Lisa Fenk from the Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligence in Germany. To get close up with fly eyes yourself, check out the paper in the show notes. Coming up, ahead of COP27, a group of researchers call for militaries around the world to release data on their climate emissions. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Sharmini Bundell. The wreck of a Second World War German patrol boat is influencing marine life at the bottom of the sea, 80 years after it was sunk by a British Air Force bomb. Scientists took samples of bacteria and sediments from around the wreck of converted trawler ship the John Mann that sank to the bottom of the North Sea in 1942. They found traces of explosive chemicals, heavy metals and pollutants called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, all of which are presumed to have seeped out of the ship's coal bunker, munitions and steel hull. The samples also showed high levels of certain bacteria, in particular several bacteria which are able to degrade aromatic compounds and others which are known to be common in sediments contaminated with polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This shows that the shipwreck is still affecting the microbial community around it, which could have implications for other shipwrecks and their effects on local bacterial ecosystems. Dive into that research in Frontiers in Marine Science. A rare form of childhood epilepsy has been traced back to a genetic mutation from a single ancestor who lived hundreds of years ago. Researchers in Australia recruited 14 families who all have a mild form of epilepsy linked with a particular gene variant. They wanted to determine whether this variant arose multiple times independently or whether it could have been passed down through multiple generations. Even though the families didn't seem to be related, matching sections of DNA on chromosome 19, where this mutation occurs, indicate that they all descended from a common ancestor about 31 generations ago, 
which puts it likely around 800 years. It looks like the original carrier lived in Britain and their descendants then went on to spread to both Australia and the USA. The gene variant was probably able to persist because it causes mild symptoms in childhood, which usually resolve by the age of around six years. Find out more in the American Journal of Human Genetics. With the UN's COP27 conference kicking off in Egypt next week, the eyes of the world will be focused on what governments will pledge to do in order to reduce global emissions. But there's one sector of countries' carbon outputs that remains something of a mystery, and that's the emissions of their militaries. This week in Nature, a group of researchers have written a comment article arguing for better reporting and greater accountability for these military emissions. Oliver Belcher from Durham University in the UK is one of the authors, and I called him up to find out more. He started by giving me an overview of what is known and what researchers would like to know about this area. One of the major contributors to global environmental change are militaries, and not only in terms of how they affect environments during warfare, but also the missions they put into the atmosphere. One of the things that we've been trying to do is think about, one, what's the scale of this problem? How much are militaries actually contributing missions to the atmosphere? But also, how do we calculate that? You know, in terms of actual estimates, when you look at all the numbers from various sources, militaries contribute about somewhere between 1% and 5% to global emissions, which is comparable to aviation and shipping industries. So it's a big contributor. Mm. And what sort of emissions are we talking about? I mean, I guess we might think, when we think about military, we might think about, you know, fighter planes or stuff like that. But I guess it's both directly like that and maybe more indirect as well. Well, you hit it on right there. There's the direct emissions that come from military activities that we can look at and, and calculate that come from base infrastructure, from static structures, from logistical supply chains, from vehicles that are in operation. But there are also indirect emissions, which are much harder to calculate. For example, when you think of a military fighter jet, a company has to make that. That vehicle has to be delivered to a military. What are the emissions involved indirectly in that manufacture and delivery of a military vehicle? Why is it then that these emissions aren't necessarily known that you know you said there's like a, a wide estimate of what they might be why is that the case one of the issues that we run into is there's no centralized place where we can go to see what military missions are in a particular country and one reason why not is during the 1990s when the kyoto protocol was being negotiated one of the things in the u.s context that was negotiated was to exclude military emissions from the reporting mechanisms that are embedded in the protocol at the time, right? So that's a kind of a historical legacy that's there. So since this was excluded, we now have to put together on our own databases to calculate what those military missions are based on this fragmented field of data that we have to access through different agencies. And things changed a bit in Paris in 2015, but reporting of emissions still remains voluntary and inconsistent. One of the issues, it seems to me, is that the military, whatever country, is an impossibly complex thing, right? And so I guess one of the issues that does exist is actually working out methodologies to combine the emissions from all these different moving parts to work out what a military is actually putting out. It goes without saying almost that calculating 
direct emissions from infrastructure is much easier than emissions that come from mobile vehicles, right? That's where you get into these national security issues that always haunt this kind of work. You have to be able to know what sorties are going to and fro in order to be able to get an accurate understanding of those emissions outputs. And a lot of times militaries are hesitant to reveal that data, right? Something else you talk about in your piece as well is calculating emissions based on active conflicts and and rebuilding afterwards, right? Something, I guess, which has come into stark focus, particularly surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for example, and, and the emissions that exist now and will exist into the future there too. When Russia invaded Ukraine, I had a lot of journalists calling me asking me, you know, what are the climate change effects of the war in Ukraine? And I, all I could say was, we don't know. And it'll take a while to actually understand that with any certainty. However, you may recall in the early days of the war in March of 2022, there was a moment when there's this long convoy of vehicles outside of Kiev, miles long for you know a week or so, but they were stopped. And one of the questions I had during that time was, are those vehicles idling or turned off? right? And they're idling, you know, how are they getting fuel? You know, that's just a small picture of what happens more broadly in a war zone. But again, like I said before, that's one of the most difficult things actually to calculate. And that's one of the things that makes this kind of work difficult. But you know, those methodologies can be developed over time. If it is tough to develop these methodologies because of all these different moving parts, how can researchers and militaries work to develop them then? I mean, the straightforward answer is for researchers and militaries to work closer together, you know, we have to know actually what the operational elements are in order to develop robust methodologies to calculate the emissions from those operations. But, you know, I I do think there are indirect emissions that are just as important. And you can find them in places that you're probably not even suspecting. The project that we're working on right now is calculating the carbon footprint of the U.S. military's walling of Baghdad in the mid-2000s. And so those concrete walls, concrete just happens to be one of the dirtiest industries in terms of carbon emissions that there is. And so each one of those sections of wall has a carbon footprint. So that's an indirect emissions image that you can only understand retrospectively. So we need in the present researchers and militaries to work closer together to develop robust methodologies to understand emissions output now But we also need to have more retrospective methodologies to understand what those direct and indirect carbon emissions were in the past so we can actually have a better understanding of how war contributes to climate change. Once these methodologies are in place, and if what you've called for does come true, that militaries do start publishing their emissions outputs, what needs to happen to reduce those emissions? And again, how does research fit into that? A couple of ways. One, Militaries need to think about reducing their reliance on hydrocarbon-based fuels and thinking more about incorporating green technologies to offset those carbon emissions. So that's one straightforward answer. And many militaries, including the UK and the US and others in Western Europe, are doing that very thing. Other thing that needs to happen is really think deeply about how war contributes to climate change and have that be part of the discussion when wars are being offered as solutions to some sort of problem. So what we need to do really is put climate change issues at the forefront. Have that be part of the conversation when we offer rationales for going to war. So the UN's COP27 conference starts next week in Egypt. What would you like to see on the agenda? Well, there is one session, at least on 
military missions at COP27, which is huge for us because we were at COP26 and military missions wasn't on the agenda at all. And so I think that it's important because once these issues get on the agenda, they really take on a life of their own. And I'm really excited to see where this goes in the next five to 10 years. That was Oliver Belcher from Durham University. To read his co-authored comments, look out for a link in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. I'll go first this week, as Ben, you've already mentioned COP27, and my story is related to that. So as you mentioned, COP27 is being hosted this year by Egypt, and the following year it's going to be hosted by the United Arab Emirates. So the eyes of the world are going to be on the Middle East for the next couple of years when it comes to climate, and there's an article in Nature all about their particular climate pledges. I mean, right off the bat, Nick, I guess there's a dichotomy there for some of these nations between what they're pledging to do and the fact that that I guess a lot of their economy centres on the production of oil. Well, you've hit the nail on the head there, Ben, really, because this article is really about that dichotomy. So it starts off by talking about what the pledges are from these nations. And there was a report published by the United Nations Climate Change this week that has sort of shown that they've actually got quite ambitious targets. So Egypt and the United Arab Emirates are among a handful of countries that have actually updated their climate targets in line with the COP26 promises from Glasgow last year. United Arab Emirates, for example, is promising to cut its emissions by 31% by 2030, which is improving upon its promise last year of 23.5%. But at the same time, some researchers have a few questions about these promises. And and what sort of questions are they then, Nick? The key thing, and this is true of many nations, is how they're actually going to achieve it. Promises are all well and good, but how do you actually get there? And there are some parts of how they're aiming to achieve this that are a little bit unclear as to how they would work. For example, the United Arab Emirates strategy includes 12% of its energy by 2050 coming from something called clean coal, which is where you use coal, but the emissions are captured. However, the technology to do this is still pretty new and hasn't really been proved to be economically viable. So it's unclear if this would be a viable strategy. So there are these key questions as to how they will achieve it. But at the same time, they are certainly putting their money where their mouth is. The United Arab Emirates government says it will invest around $163 billion in clean and renewable energy by 2050. And the Saudi government is estimating that it will spend around $186 billion on it. And investment in the region in renewables is certainly increased substantially. And investing in renewables, all these sorts of things are are very, very important when it comes to cutting emissions. But of course, the biggest source of emissions is still burning fossil fuels. Absolutely. And there isn't much evidence that there's any sense of slowing down their production and export of oil and natural gas. In fact, there is still investment in exploration and finding of new resources to actually tap into. So there is this sort of dichotomy, as we've said a few times, between making these public promises, but then also producing much of the world's fossil fuels. 
Now, there are some caveats here, and one of them is obviously is not them necessarily using all these fossil fuels. They're used across the world by many nations. And for some nations, it's not going to be viable for them to immediately stop using fossil fuels, especially nations that don't have the infrastructure in place for sort of renewable energies and that sort of thing. But of course, many researchers would like to see a push away from production of fossil fuels. And so the eyes of the world will return to these nations in COP27 next week and also in COP28 in the following year to see what it is they say and what they promise going forwards. But that's my story for this week. What have you found for us to chat about, Ben? Well, I've actually got a little double here, Nick. Two stories that are related to Mars, either directly or sort of indirectly. And we'll come to that in a little bit. But the first one is about the InSight lander. And I read about this in Nature. And it's almost time to bid farewell to this spacecraft. To date, the first and only spacecraft to look for quakes on Mars. Oh, that sounds so sad. What has spelled the demise for this little lander? Well, a storm recently blanketed InSight's solar panels with dust. Okay, and there's a picture of it in the news article, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And what this means is it's well, it's running out of juice. It can't charge its batteries anymore. So in the forthcoming weeks, it'll probably stop responding to commands from Earth and, and gently kind of slide away, which is kind of sad. But what is nice is that This spacecraft hasn't gone out with a whimper. It has gone out with quite the bang. And it turns out that last year, InSight detected not one, but two of the biggest meteorite impacts ever seen on Mars. And these were described in a couple of papers in Science. And it's used data from how the seismic waves rippled across Mars to really allow scientists to learn more about the crust of the planet oh i see so like the vibrations that went through the planet as it was struck have given us information about what it's made of yeah that's right and so insight picked up these impacts from thousands of kilometers away and there's a lot of questions about what the crust was made up of and the way that these sort of seismic signals traveled through the crust suggests that this crust to the north is denser than the crust directly beneath InSight, which landed in this region where the rocks, you know, are particularly porous. And what is neat as well is that researchers could actually see where these quakes originated from thanks to NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, right? So they could see from space what was going on. And you could see the craters on the surface kind of after the impacts. And they used that to pinpoint when it happened. And I said that these were the biggest ones ever detected. Both craters, Nick, are more than 130 metres across and are the largest seen by the orbiter in the 16 years that it's been studying the planet. Wow, Okay, so that seems like very fortunate timing that just when we had all these instruments in place, these meteors struck the planet and were able to get all this cool data. So what's going to happen now with this lander? It's sort of, you know, breathing its last robotic breath, I guess. What's the sort of legacy going to be? Nick, you're right to say legacy there because InSight does leave a rich legacy of discovery. It was quite troubled, from what I've learned, getting it to Mars. There was quite a lengthy delay. And when it did actually touch down, some of it didn't work. This little thing called the mole, this probe that's supposed to dig down, didn't work. It took months to detect its first quake. But fast forward to now, and InSight has gathered info on more than 1,300 Mars quakes. And it's allowed researchers to calculate the size of Mars's core, the thickness of its crust, to determine that Mars's mantle is richer in iron than Earth's. All this kind of stuff about the internal layers that will really help 
scientists to understand how the planet formed and evolved over billions of years. And speaking of a lot of years, that's kind of the subject for my next story. And this is, Nick, how long do you think that microorganisms could survive under the surface of the red planet? Oh, I mean, I know on Earth there are some that can survive for a very long time, like maybe hundreds of years or something like that. So I'll go for maybe a few thousand years. You are several orders of magnitude off. Oh. Um, and this is a story <laughs> that I read about in New Scientist, and it's based on a paper in astrobiology. And what a team of researchers here on Earth did is they subjected a bunch of different microorganisms to conditions like they might experience on Mars. Okay, so pretty dry, very cold. So what they did was they desiccated and froze these microorganisms, right? Essentially, they freeze dried them. And then they absolutely battered them with radiation similar to what they'd expect on Mars. And what they found is that one particularly hardy species of bacteria, okay, called uh, called Deinococcus radiodurans, and any microbiologist listening will be shouting Conan the Bacterium, all right, because that's his nickname, because it's a super hardy bacterium. It would just shrug off being smashed with radiation, radiation that would, you know, kill a human Deinococcus don't care. It just keeps on going, right? And so in this case, they kind of did some experiments to work out how long Deinococcus could last. And they estimate that potentially 280 million years, uh, it could be dormant underground, right? 10 meters below the surface. So a fair while. And this is a lot longer than previous experiments have suggested. But many of those have been looking at bacteria just kind of submerged in water, for example, rather than this kind of dried out dormant state. Okay, but that is... That is like a significant portion of the history of life on Earth. How on Earth could something last so long? Well, Deinococcus is really good at repairing DNA, okay? And it's well known that dormant bacteria are pretty hardy. But whether this is the case on Mars, I mean, this is where things get very hypothetical, right, Nick? Because I think you're assuming that A, there is life on Mars, which I think is a reasonably large question to try and answer. B, that it would be the same as it is here on Earth. All this kind of stuff. But what's interesting is that Mars kind of dried out a few billion years ago, right? So if this estimate, you know, is accurate, it's just that enough time has passed that there's, you know, little chance of finding something alive. But I suppose, hey, you never know. But it also raises a bunch of interesting things as well, right? Like if it shows that microorganisms could survive under the soil for a while, it means that we need to be super careful when we actually go to Mars to look for life, for example, because it'd be really, really sad if we found it and it turns out we'd put it there ourselves for example right so whilst it's quite a fun one on the surface or i mean just beneath the surface i guess it does ask these questions about future scientific endeavors anyway let's leave it there for this edition of the briefing chat and listeners don't forget you can find links to all of these stories in the show notes and also a link on where you can sign up for the nature briefing to have even more stories like them delivered directly to your inbox that's all for this week But before we go, I just wanted to mention that I've been working on a special podcast episode about racism in health. The COVID-19 pandemic has starkly highlighted inequalities in health, and so in this episode, I dive into some of the reasons why, and reveal how people have injected bias and racism into medical devices, textbooks, and even warped the basic perception of disease. You can find that wherever you found this podcast. I'm Nick Petrichell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.